0: June 1944, and the war in Europe had reached a critical phase. The only way to stop Hitler, the Third Reich, was to launch an invasion of Europe on what would become known as the D-Day landings. Part of that invasion plan involved gliders and aircraft carrying paratroopers. They jumped from aircraft to help secure the way ahead for the landing craft heading for the beaches of France. This wouldn't have been possible without, according to American President Dwight D. Eisenhower, four pieces of equipment that most senior officers came to regard as amongst the most vital to their success in Africa and Europe. The bulldozer, the jeep, the two-ton truck and the C-47 airplane. Curiously, none of these were designed for combat. One of these aircraft, a C-47 Skytrain, formerly of the 79th Troop Carrier Squadron, 436th Troop Carrier Group, flew with the United States Army Air Force from Membry Field, Station 466 during World War II, one of 800 C-47s that flew on June 6, 1944. The aircraft, christened Night Fright, took part in all the airborne missions in Europe during the war, dropping paratroopers, towing gliders, evacuating wounded and flying tons of much-needed supplies to the front line. Having survived the war and several civilian roles, the aircraft is now being restored in Coventry in the UK. And one of the people behind that restoration is Charlie Walker, our guest this week on Squawk 7000. Charlie, thank you for joining us on Squawk 7000.
1: No, no. Well, firstly, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's a pleasure to... Pleasure to join you. And yeah, no, you're right. Absolutely. It's um it's been a long process. I think um ironically, um when we first started out down this road, we only intended to go skin deep with the restoration and the project. And you know, with the the whole principle and and aim of the project, I guess, has changed. And and you're right, we've come across lots of obstacles, some of them with the with the physical condition of um the aircraft and the components and lots of other hurdles along the way but um yeah it's it's been an adventure that's for sure
0: okay let's go back a little bit further than uh this was to the beginning of the story and uh, we're talking around the time of the uh the d-day landings memorial and and the connection with your family and a place called memory what's the story
1: yeah, that's right. If we if we go back even a little bit further than that, um, well, November two thousand and twelve is is when we actually physically got involved with this C forty seven Night Fright. But you know, it goes back further than that. For myself, my my passion really is sort of twofold, I suppose. It's it's commercial aviation. You know, one of my roles um, is, is a commercial pilot, so I've obviously got a love and a passion for for aviation. But but you're right. Our, our family is based both um you know business wise and, and we live at Membury and there's a there's a lot of history around Membury. It's a, it's an old um RAF base, so RAF Membry, but it was actually the Americans that uh, are most synonymous with Membury. So the United States Army Air Force and I guess I was I was curious growing up, you know, with the love of aviation and, and history to, to look into what happened at Membury. You know, what took place there, what squadrons were based there, what aircraft did they fly, what what did they do? You know, what happened there? And it It quickly became apparent to me that it was the Americans, and in particular uh, troop carrier command who flew the c forty sevens that were really synonymous with Mebri and you know those were some some big famous missions you know you're talking d day and Market Garden and the crossing of the Rhine some some very very cool stuff, and yeah, that's where my obsession with the c forty seven started really.
0: How how does the conversation go in 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 the family when you say, uh, "Folks, I'd like to buy a C forty seven and get it flying"?
1: Yeah, you're right. That's that's quite an interesting conversation, and we've had quite a few interesting conversations subsequently. But no, luckily, um, you know, particularly my dad is um, he's very mechanically minded. His passion is more cars and vehicles than than aeroplanes and aviation, but. I think he saw, uh, you know, where I was trying to go with it, and preserve some of the history of the airfield there, and and give something back. And um, you know, he was luckily he was he was really on board with the idea. Uh, as I say, the whole thing has kind of grown and and snowballed. And um, he does like to remind me from time to time that this was a you know a project that was my idea, and we set out down, down one road and have ended up going down another. But um, it's all good fun.
0: Your family are in the logistics business.
1: Yeah, that's right. So we're into what we call logistics and fulfillment. It was a business started by my father back in the late 1970s. And uh, at that time, it was very much import-export, so moving goods from A to B by ocean and by air. But, you know, with the change of the world, the advent of the Internet, et cetera, uh, we're into logistics and distribution. So that that's pick and pack and, and dispatch, you know, across trade and, and consumer deliveries.
0: Of course, the last couple of months and indeed the last year haven't probably been that easy for you too. So with all of that happening, I suppose what I'm'm I'm curious about is how does a guy or indeed a group go about finding themselves an aircraft? Where did you look?
1: Well yeah, that's that's a very good question really. and we're, we're very fortunate. So I connected with um with a number of um, friends and individuals, um, most of who are still involved with the project to this day to assist me with that. So, As I say, I sort of became obsessed with the history of Membry, the Americans and the C-47. And what we did essentially is we sat down, we looked at the 436 Troop Carrier Squadron, which is what operated from Membry, looked at the four squadrons that were contained within that. Um, And we actually, with the help of a chap called Tom Tom Woodhouse, who's working on Night Fright to this day um, and a historian, a local historian called Roger Day who's written a book called Membry at War. We actually produced a spreadsheet of the serial number of every C-47 that operated from Membry and we were actually able to detail what happened to most of those. So, you know, did, did they survive the war? If they did, you know, where are they located? You know, are they accessible? Could we restore them? Um, and as I say, we found, we found that information for about 90% of those aircraft and Tom actually was was the one that found Night Fright. Um, She'd failed to sell um, on eBay. She was listed on eBay, failed to sell. And we tracked down the incumbent owner um, in a scrapyard in Arkansas in the United States. Um, This was late 2012. um, Made an offer to buy the aircraft, which was accepted.
0: Dare I ask how much?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm happy to share that. So at the time, it was $75,000, which if I look back on it now, I think is probably a reasonable deal. Okay, we've, we've invested a huge amount of time, money and expertise into the aircraft, but I think that's, um, that's something that we'll look back on and, and think that was a pretty good deal.
0: Mm. We'll talk a little bit more about the, the restoration process, but I'm curious, you've mentioned the name Night Fright several times. For our audience, uh, wh- wh- where's the name coming from?
1: Yeah, well, our understanding of that is the, the captain of the aircraft is a First Lieutenant Bill Watson. Um, and we've been told that it's a, it's a play on words by one of his favourite books, a book by a, a French author, Anton de Saint-Exupéry. Uh, and the book was called Night Flight. And we've been told it's a play on words. So Night Fright. And obviously, Saint-Exupéry is, is quite famous and he's had uh, one of the Lyon airports in France na- named after him.
0: And of course, you presume to have access to things like archive footage. You've been able to see uh, original film of the aircraft flying uh, around the time of World War Two.
1: Uh actual film is limited. Uh we do have a sort of a, a five to six minute clip from an archive that we think shows night fright, although it's not definitive. Um we are quite lucky to have a, a handful of really nice black and white photos of the aircraft from the war. Um and we're very privileged to have spoken to both of the pilots who operated the aircraft during the war. And we, we have access to some of their sort of wartime diaries and some of their black and white photos. So, yeah, in in that sense, we've been really fortunate.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Charlie, let's go back to the arrival then of the aircraft from the U.S. And uh, what was the what was that like when, when you find yourself walking around um, – a rather tired, I imagine, looking aeroplane.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if if I wind back a little bit, but initially what we did when we purchased the aircraft in 2012 is we sent a, a couple of local DC-3 experts in the States, a, a father and son team, Frank and Glenn Moss, to survey the aircraft. And ironically, within a week, they actually had it flying. So they dragged it out of the scrapyard and, and moved it to their base in Florida. And the original plan was for Frank and Glenn to complete the nut and bolt restoration in Florida and then we would fly her across the pond um, and back to the UK. And, you know, for various reasons, which I won't get into in too much detail, you know, one of which obviously was managing a project of this size um, with us based in the UK and then based in Florida was a challenge. So we made the decision, as you said, to um, to move the aircraft back to the UK. And that was a huge logistical exercise, you know, that involved two experts, dismantling the aircraft over a period of six to eight weeks and then a a logistical challenge um you know taking it apart obviously and and putting it in special cradles and jigs and moving it by boat across to to the uk to southampton port and then by road up to to coventry and yeah it was a it was a momentous day when it arrived in coventry that was a, a a challenge in itself but obviously it was a like a giant airfix kit at that stage.
0: <laughs> did you sit in it, and and did it talk to you?
1: I think every DC three talks to you. To be honest, I think it's um it's a really iconic aircraft, and there's a, a very very famous saying that says if you've flown one DC three, you've flown one DC three, and that's because they're all so different, and they've uh, they've all got their own individual character. And yeah, I'd like to think she talks to her to me, and I I probably talk to her. Not that I'll, I'll tell my wife that, but yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's the other affair. I was thinking about the idea, that too, and it might be helpful to put it in context, just how many of these were built. And as you said, they're, they're hardly any that are that are the same.
1: No, exactly. And as you say, there was quite a large number of them built, you know, tens of thousands, and there's probably over 300 of them still flying around the world today. But I suppose because the fact they've all had such a a busy post-war life. They've all been pressed into different services, whether that's cargo or military or carrying passengers. They've all been adapted in their own individual ways and they've all got their own story to tell, whether that be wartime or post-war.
0: You featured in a TV series and it, it told the story really of you trying to get this ready for the, the, the D-Day landing commemoration.
1: Yeah, that that's right. Warbird Workshop, it was, yeah, which was which was featured on UK TV. And yeah, a really nice little series, as you say, that focuses on people trying to restore warbirds and all the trials and tribulations that that entails and, you know, the delays and everything that, that goes along with that. And as you would have seen with the ending of the programme of that, we obviously didn't make it for the 75th anniversary of D-Day in June 2019, which was, at the time... Yeah, it was. It was a huge disappointment. I'm not going to lie. That was something that we really, really wanted to do. And, you know, it didn't happen for, for no other reason, really, than we just had so much to do. And we're trying to do everything in such precise detail that we, we just couldn't do it in time. But uh, yeah, I was just going to say on the flip side of that, what it has enabled us to do is, is just to, to do everything to that minutiae detail that we were really looking for. So in the long run, it will do us good. But as I say, it was disappointing at the time.
0: It, it's very hard to uh, underestimate the the care, the attention and the absolute uh, perfection that you're going for in this restoration. Where is that coming from?
1: It's, it's it's funny. It's a good point that you pick up on, really. As I say, when we first set out on this project way back in 2012, all we wanted to do, well, in fact, we were going to have this aircraft as a gate guardian, as the static memorial outside on a pole outside Membry Airfield, and mm-hmm. kind of thought to ourselves, well, that's great, but be even better if it could fly so that's the first thing that changed and we were going to just paint it in the right markings in the right scheme and you know make it make it look good get it running and fly it around and then I don't know where it came from really but as you say there's a a step change in the project where we just decided that actually if we're going to do this you know we're going to do it right and we're going to make it really really good and you know we're going to make it the finest example of a C-47 you know we can find and that links in very nicely to what we want to use it for, which is, of course, air shows and displays, but also as a living, breathing memorial and educational platform.
0: We have a saying here in Ireland about you know, Murphy's wheelbarrow. It's the same wheelbarrow for the last 50 years, only it's had three new handles and four new wheels and a new body. Um, does that describe your C47? Is there anything left of the old girl?
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's pretty fair. I mean, you know, wh- what I would say is it's very different to... Uh, you know, a Spitfire restoration these days, where you might start out with a nameplate and you build an aircraft around it. That's mm. whilst there's nothing wrong with that, not not whatsoever. It's still fantastic. That's not what we're doing. We've got an original aircraft. Uh, the fuselage is the same. The center section's the same. Yes, of course, we've replaced bits of skin, and you know, doubtless the engines obviously aren't the same engines that were on it during the war. Uh, one of the wings has been replaced during her post-war life. But no, it's 90% of an original aircraft that's obviously had you know, modern, I don't know, fuel, hydraulic lines, nuts and bolts and hardware. But anything that we can keep as original, we will keep. That's very much part of the premise of the project.
0: You had a really interesting foraging trip to Canada, I think, at one stage.
1: We did, yeah. Yeah. Part of the challenge really is trying to find all of these original period World War II items in here that were obviously ripped out post-war. That's that's a real challenge. And we came across, well, not a wreck of a C-47, but, um, you know, one that was beyond repair and restoration in Canada. So, yeah, we ended up buying that fuselage and, as you said, spending a, a couple of weeks out in the, the freezing temperatures in Ontario. And it, and it was freezing, sort of dismantling the various parts of that aircraft and shipping them back to try and speed up our process.
0: I imagine you could probably now identify uh, an individual nut, bolt, or rivet in in a
1: DC three at this stage. Yeah, pretty much. It's um, yeah, I certainly couldn't have done when I started out, but um, yeah, it's it's been fascinating. You know, looking through all the original parts manuals and and catalogs, and you know, researching all of these World War II items, it's been it's been fantastic. And you know, I'm very very fortunate to have some highly skilled people around me assisting with that. You know, whom without then it wouldn't be possible really could
0: could you expand on that a bit more charlie i'd be fascinated by some of the of the skills you've got around you because i think there's one man is it mark masters with fabric is one is one of the geniuses you have
1: yeah absolutely mark's one of the team he sort of dips in and out of the commentary as you say he's highly skilled on the fabric side of things but he also did a lot of the detail in terms of you know stuff work around the the nacelles um, and the landing gear and various other bits The project itself is led by Ben Cox of Heritage Air Services who's ex-Air Atlantique at Coventry as are a lot of the rest of the guys so they're what I'd call the full-time sort of paid members of the uh, engineering team but you know that aside probably my right-hand man on the project is a is an RAF sergeant based at Bryce Norton called Neil Jones. Uh, He's also an aircraft engineer but he's a an absolute expert on all things C-47, gliders, paratroopers, and World War II. So he's my right-hand man. And then we've got others, um, Tom Woodhouse, who helped find the aircraft initially, who's also uh, dipping in and out of Coventry, historians such as Roger Day. You know, we've had had help from all sorts of directions, to be honest, and we're very, very lucky that the, the military have helped us as well. We've had quite a little bit of assistance from the RAF, which has been beneficial as well.
0: What's been your strategy for keeping morale up on on a project like this? Because it it must be inevitable that sometimes you go, oh, why bother?
1: Yeah, I I think that that's entirely fair. And I'd be lying if I said that I didn't have those thoughts myself at times. You know, you you get to a point you think, you know, this this just isn't isn't going quick enough. It's not going anywhere. You know, what can we do? But. I think, you know, you've just got to look and, and focus on the end goal. Why are you doing this? Why is it so significant? And it is really significant. And we're doing it for two reasons, really. It's one to honour uh veterans who fought for our freedom and two, to preserve living history and educate future generations. And I think if you focus on those two principles, then you very quickly um, you know, get back on track. But of course there's been lots of hurdles it's been a mammoth task and there's still quite a bit to do and I'm sure there'll be be challenges ahead but you know we absolutely can't wait to see the final result
0: people who were thinking of doing a restoration themselves might be interested to know as well that you've been you've been quite um i suppose uh, creative in the way you've th- thought about funding as well Tell us more about coffee and whiskey and the associations with nitrite
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely I mean we're I suppose we're very fortunate that um the aircraft restoration itself is is largely sort of self-sufficient where it's privately funded by the business. But we've got some fantastic sponsors um and and partners, as you say. And we have got some very creative merchandise and not necessarily something that we've gone out looking for, but we've just ended up coming across and partnering with like-minded people that have got the same principles as, as we do. So you stumbled on a couple there. So the Warbird Coffee Company is a, is a coffee company run by a couple of friends of ours. Um one, Adam Berry, he's um, written some some brilliant books called A Breathtaking Spectacle about Troop Carrier and obviously has sort of sort of a similar interest to us. So that's a fantastic idea to, to sell tea and coffee uh, and some of the proceeds going directly to warbird restoration such as ours. And, and the other one you mentioned is Aviation Heritage Spirits, as you say, who produce lovely bottles of, of liqueurs with a similar principle, with some of the proceeds going towards restoration such as Night Fright and various others. So we like to partner with people that have got similar ideas to us, really.
0: All right, as we uh, come to the end of our chat, Charlie, what's the what's the future prognosis for the aircraft and uh, for the sound of those two engines?
1: Yeah, that's the million dollar question. That one, isn't it? Really, it's um, it's been a difficult twelve months for obvious reasons. It has been um, for everyone's, but not that we want to use that as an excuse. But where we're looking at the moment is we've just finished the overhaul of both of the wings, which is pretty exciting. So we're going to try and really kick on over the next six months and. I'd like to be at the back end of this year in a position to, to do some, some engine runs and some testing with a view to doing some flying of the aircraft next summer. But let's see what happens.
0: There's a whole air show circuit out there waiting for you, I imagine.
1: There certainly is. I think it will be, it'll be lovely, won't it, for everyone to get back to air shows over the, over the past sort of 12 to 18 months. Everything's been really, really challenging. And if we can take part in even a handful of those next year, that will be super exciting.
0: Have you a DC-3 or C-47 on your rating, on your license?
1: I do, yeah. I'm fortunate to have done a, a rating in the States um, seven or eight years ago, and I keep my hand in by flying a couple in the UK on the, on the airshow circuit. So very fortunate, but obviously can't wait to jump into night
0: Tell us a few of uh, the characteristics of flying it, actually, just for, for people who might be curious. I only found out in, in preparing for this chat with you about the fact that rudder's fabric.
1: Yeah, that's right, that's right. It's... um. I suppose in the grand scheme of things, it's it's a relatively simple aircraft system-wise. It's quite basic and it's quite straightforward, but, you know, where the challenge comes in obviously is one, it's a large aircraft and, and two, it's a tail dragger and they obviously have their, their certain characteristics that can catch you out. Once it's airborne, you know, it's, it's just like an aeroplane. Yes, it's it's heavy and it's a little bit harder work than some of the modern aircraft, but it's a handful in the critical phases of flight, i.e. takeoff and landing is where it can catch you out if you're not on your game.
0: And of course, the final creative idea for you is you have to in some way capture the smell of the aircraft and see if you can sell that on as well. <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're up for anything. But, um, you know, hopefully we'll get a sense of that. We've got all of the original equipment installed in the aircraft with all the radio and the nav gear and, you know, the the canvas and fabric. So I'm sure we'll, we'll capture a little bit of that.
0: Charlie Walker, thank you so much for joining us on Squawk 7000. We're going to put a link in our program notes to your website, and we look forward to hearing about you coming closer towards completion and possibly seeing you over this side of the world as well on the airshow circuit. Charlie Walker, thank you for joining us on Squawk 7000.
1: Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.